1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean
0: and I'm the very titular Carrie
1: It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable the unexplainable the macabre and the bizarre and tries to find an answer Hello, Caroline. Hi You remember a few weeks ago during that spooky Halloween season? uh, We did an episode all about werewolves about uh, old werewolf legends werewolf exorcisms werewolf witch trials
0: all that fun stuff.
1: All that fun stuff. And this week we are uh, touching back on old classic uh, universal movie monsters with a uh, another segment on the real world implications of old world folklore. Um, this week we're talking about New England vampires.
0: Is that a real thing?
1: Uh, well, uh, if you ask someone in New England from the 1800s, then probably.
0: Interesting.
1: Let me set the scene for you, Caroline. March 17, 1892, a group of villagers, with enthusiasm, gathered on the grounds of the Chestnut Hill Cemetery in Exeter, Rhode Island. They had picks and shovels, and they set busily to work digging up Mary Brown and her daughters, 20-year-old Mary Olive and 19-year-old Mercy Lena.
0: I'm hoping they were already dead.
1: Uh, Yes. Uh, All three had actually died lingering, wasting deaths, mysterious uh, deaths where they wasted away to nothing. Um, And the same condition had actually been passed on to a younger brother in the family.
0: Who was still alive.
1: Who was still alive. Now, when the villagers chopped open these caskets, uh, Mary and Olive were decomposing appropriately. For women who had been in the grave for years, they were basically skeletons at the bottom of the coffins, dry bones. The other daughter, however, Mercy, when her coffin was opened, the villagers were shocked to find she looked just as if she was sleeping. They said her cheeks were flushed with life, and some swore that her hair and nails had grown since she was buried. When was she buried? Uh, Nine months before.
0: Okay, so she wouldn't be a skeleton by that point.
1: No, but you wouldn't expect, you know, nine months later, you'd or nine weeks later, I'm sorry, nine weeks, you don't expect uh, a, fr- a fresh corpse. Like, she looked like she could have popped out of the coffin. What was worse, when they pricked her body and checked her internal organs, they found there was still fresh, red, wet blood inside that hadn't frozen despite the winter chill.
0: Well, she hadn't been embalmed, had she?
1: No, embalming wasn't uh, wasn't a thing for these people. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was still blood inside of their organs, and this confirmed the villagers' suspicions. The teenage girl had been a vampire, and she was actively sucking the life force from her younger brother from beyond the grave. They set about tearing the beast's heart from its chest and burning it in hopes of putting the manifestation to rest. So they burned her heart? They burned her heart, yes. And... For a little context, Carrie, look back up at that date. 1892. This is 200 years after the witch trials in Salem, uh, just a few hundred miles away. Mm-hmm. So what the hell? 18, I mean, this is like the turn of the century, right? It, it's an industrialized nation uh, ready to jump into the 20th century. And uh, here these folks are digging up bodies and uh, um, burning hearts because they're afraid of vampires.
0: It does seem a bit late for that.
1: So, uh, where does all this come from? I wanted to dig into it on this week's special on New England vampires because Mer- this Mercy Brown case was probably the latest vampire exorcism in New England, and it's certainly one of the most widely covered, one of the most one of the best documented. But it is actually probably the last in about a hundred-year tradition of New Englanders burning uh, vampire parts.
0: Kind of like how the Salem witch trials really the last gasp of witch hunts in America and not the first.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think in a similar way, um, I, I think the stories probably spread in a similar way. Like people going, can you get a load of, th- th- look at this thing going on. Because mm-hmm. it seems so old fashioned in 1892, you know. Now, as we've covered, uh, New Englanders tended to come from Puritan backgrounds, uh, except for Rhode Islanders. Providence, Rhode Island had been founded by Roger Williams uh, for the purposes of religious liberty. Actually, did you know this? Roger Williams was a preacher from Salem, Massachusetts.
0: Yes, that's the statue that's in the square. That's Roger Williams.
1: And he was kicked out of town for his temperate liberal ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he was given the till until the end of winter of... 1935, to get out of town. You mean 1635? He was given until the winter of 1635, yes, to get out of town, provided he didn't do any preaching. And then they were going to banish him back to England in January of uh, 1636, because his followers just kept coming to his house. And he was like, I'm not preaching, I swear! (laughs) Um... So, he was ready to get arrested and shipped back off to England when Williams gave the authorities the slip and settled in Seekonk with some of his followers. He bought some land from uh, the natives there. And after a time, they moved out to Narragansett Indian Territory, uh, out in what's now Rhode Island, uh, a few months after that. Mm -hmm. Their 1637 civil compact says... We, whose names are hereunder, desirous to inhabit in the town of Providence, do promise to subject ourselves in active or passive obedience to all such orders or agreements as shall be made for public good of our body in an orderly way by the major assent of the present inhabitants, master of families, incorporated together into a town fellowship and others whom they shall admit unto them only in civil things. A little democracy. Everybody gets to vote. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, As I said, based around uh, both political and religious tolerance, uh, they didn't even persecute witches in Rhode Island, which may have led our old friend Cotton Mather to call the colony the Sewer of New England.
0: Oh, lovely, lovely Cotton Mather.
1: Um, But everywhere else, uh, Puritan, and even there, of course, they were staunch Christians. It's just they uh, they weren't living that Puritan life with the uncomfortable shoes and all the buckles. So superstition was all over the place. It was a superstitious time. And stuff was really hard for New Englanders in young America. As I said, the rest of the continent was rapidly industrializing as we hit the 1800s. But in Exeter, Rhode Island, things probably didn't look that different in 1892 than 1692. The Brown family were farmers. Um, They probably didn't have any machines to help them with that farm work. The tools were most likely handmade on a farm like that still. So uh, the industrialization going on in the rest of the country really hadn't touched this part of rural New England. Mm-hmm. And so all the, all the superstition uh, was well intact, hadn't been replaced by science yet. And meanwhile, they had some scary stuff going on. Tuberculosis was rampant throughout the 19th century. And I think you can guess that is what happened to Mercy Brown and her mother and uh, sister.
0: Classic wasting disease.
1: Yes. Uh, To the Browns, it was a mysterious wasting away that they saw in their loved ones. Um, And tuberculosis at the time, when it was identified as kind of a disease or a condition, uh, was usually called consumption. In the 17 and 1800s, tuberculosis was absolutely rampant in Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont, Massachusetts, and the rest of New England. Between 1786, which is when they started keeping these statistics... And 1800, so in that 14-year span, 2% of the population of New England had been killed by tuberculosis.
0: That's a ton of people.
1: It does really well in, obviously, it's, it's an airborne disease, so it does very well in confined quarters, and often it would wipe out entire families. Mm-hmm. We know today tuberculosis is a bacterial infection that generally affects the lungs but can uh, cause other symptoms. This is some stuff I didn't know about tuberculosis, actually. 90% of tuberculosis infections show no symptoms. But for those who are symptomatic without treatment, it is a 50% mortality rate. Wow. And it's not a dead disease. We vaccinated against it pretty heavily, and uh, we also have uh, treatments more and more for it now, even if you do come down with symptomatic TB. I mean By that, I just mean better antibiotics. That's all you do. You slam this thing with antibiotics to kill the bacteria, right? About 5 to 10% of modern U.S. citizens test positive for tuberculosis, and uh, today it is treated again, yeah, with antibiotics, uh, getting the chance of death down to 4% in an active case. Mm-hmm. So uh, much, much better. We didn't know this disease was caused by a bacteria until Robert Koch discovered it on March 24th of 1882.
0: Yeah, and we go into this a little bit with our Typhoid Mary minisode on Patreon, if you're very interested in bacterial infections and the spread and all of that.
1: Yeah, germ theory was, like, in its infancy, in a big way. hmm And, um... So they didn't know, obviously they didn't have antibiotics, there was no penicillin, but they didn't even know this thing was caused by a bug. So European folk remedies for consumption included swallowing live baby frogs before breakfast.
0: And what if it was after breakfast?
1: Well, it said before breakfast. So after breakfast, I think you just wasted your time swallowing some frogs. Um, It was also thought that if you slept in a place where you would be breathing in the breath of cattle... That was good? That could cure your tuberculosis, yep. And uh, people would also drink broths made from stewing the body of a dead cat or rooster.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now, by the early to mid-1800s, people did notice that um, certain climates, like kind of mountain air climates, seemed to be good for people recovering from TB. And so in Colorado, a bunch of, throughout the 1800s, several... Sanitariums for uh, tuberculosis sufferers opened up, with the promise that the clean mountain air would, you know, get you fight and fit in no time.
0: Well, we mentioned that in haunted hotels as
1: well. Yes, we did, because one of those uh, one of those sanitariums became one of our haunted hotels. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, a tuberculosis death is slow and painful, and it is a wasting, as you said, a wasting disease. You, the patient, loses weight, coughs up blood, often the skin turns ashen and pale. And for a family in colonial or post-colonial America, it was as if watching your loved one's life force slowly being sucked away. Mm -hmm. Due to this, a folk belief developed at some point, probably back in Europe, that consumption was caused by the dead members of your family vampirically sucking away your life force.
0: Now, was that a thing before this? I thought that the real vampire mythology kind of started with Dracula.
1: Actually, uh, I know a lot about vampire mythology now. Um, There were, there was a lot of uh, vampire mythology in Eastern Europe going back into the Middle Ages. um, And most of the modern vampire myth that we know um, descends entirely from those beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um, In Eastern Europe, and this is, we covered this on the werewolf episode, right? There were witch trials for werewolves at this time. Well, it was just werewolf trials. There was a lot of, um, yes, because they called them werewolves, but the uh, local authorities were like, oh, you mean witches? <laughs> Where would with the church? Yeah, witches. Um, so in a very similar way, if you had livestock turning up dead or seemingly with their blood drained, if you had uh, family members who were turning up ill, it was often believed that a something like a witch was uh, feeding on your life force. And it was, the undead part of it was mixed in too. The vampire was believed to be a corpse who was either uh, getting up during the night and coming to its victims and drinking from their blood or sending its spirit out of the coffin at night to uh, drain the victim's life force kind of astrally.
0: Right, and that's also something that was in the witch mythology as well.
1: Yeah, and the werewolves even would send their spirits out as which, you know, what's the point of being a werewolf? Right. (laughs) At that point. Um in Eastern Europe, in the Middle Ages, uh, it was believed that the signs of the vampire included bloated, ruddy, flushed skin on a corpse. The corpse of the vampire would often have its left eye open and blood running from its eyes and mouth.
0: Why its left eye?
1: Um, I think left is always the devil one. And it's just weird to see a corpse with either of its eyes open.
2: Hmm.
1: That's my guess. Um They also said that the hairs, nails, and teeth of a vampire would continue to grow after death.
0: Well, that's always been a thing associated with corpses, but that's not really what happens. It's the skin draws back and withers, and that's why it looks like nails and things grow. It's because there's just less skin around them.
1: And it's exactly the same with gums, right? You can picture the gums kind of shrinking as they, uh, especially gums are wet, right? So as they dry out and shrink back, it would look like the teeth had become like long fang like things. Mm -hmm. It was widely believed you would become a vampire if a dog jumped over your corpse. Okay. Or if you were buried with a wound on your body that hadn't been cleaned by boiling water.
0: So it wasn't a thing of like you get bitten and you become one. It's...
1: No, no, it was your corpse. God forbid
0: a, a dog jumps over your grave.
1: Yeah, it was about something demonic happening to your corpse and making it a vampire. Okay. It was believed you could prevent vampirism. You know, just in case a dog's going to jump over that corpse at some point, you could prevent vampirism by burying your loved one upside down. Which seems like that just makes them closer to a bat, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, people would also put an earthly object, quote unquote, like a sickle or scythe nearby. I think they mean earthly object, like something that works in the earth, not just a physical thing. Yeah. Um, they would sever a corpse's tendons at the knees sometimes just in case, give them the old, uh, the old Achilles. God. And they also, I like this one, would scatter sand or seeds sometimes near the coffin, because it was believed that the vampire would be distracted counting the grains and uh, unable to move from the spot.
0: Well, that's part of the reason why the count in Sesame Street is a vampire. Is that true? Yeah.
1: it's It seems like such a... It's a thing in the book
0: Dracula, too, which I was surprised. Uh, I, I took a horror and literature class in college. It uh, wasn't as fun as... <laughs> It sounded, and that was the first time I actually read Dracula, and there's a lot of throwing sand at him, so he has to stop and count everything, and then you run away.
1: It seems like it would take him like like a month to count a handful of sand. Oh,
0: well, That's the idea. He's, he's very smart, though. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, as I said, vampires, usually the effects of the vampire would usually be missing or killed livestock or a, a loved one getting sick but they would also engage in some minor poltergeist activity. Someone would report the vampire had been pressing on their chest, keeping them from waking up at night or um, throwing household objects around. So these are things we just get in classic poltergeist cases to this day. Was that
0: also supposed to be their spirit doing this?
1: Yes, I, I think so. Interesting. This, Yeah, the spirit of the vampire would uh, sit on your chest and drink blood from your, you know, out of your skin or something. Hmm. So much of the modern Hollywood mythology is in here. You could repel a a Middle Ages Eastern European vampire with holy water or crosses, other church-type symbols. Um, Garlic. Why garlic? Uh, I'm not sure, but they would also stuff it into the mouth of a corpse if they suspected it was a vampire, like as part of the destruction of the the corpse. So I I don't know where the garlic thing came from. Hmm. And they would sprinkle mustard seed on their roof presumably for the same, like, counting effect, maybe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it was even the, like, the vampire must gain your permission to enter the home. That was sometimes part of the legend. And it was believed vampires were more active at night because they'd be less likely to get caught then. Um, but the, like, vulnerability to sunlight, sunlight actually hurting them, was never part of the uh, the equation. Interesting. They were daywalkers like Blade. <laughs> Now, the most important part of any vampire legend, how do you get rid of these guys? And in Eastern Europe, staking was the most common method. Well, it still is, I think. Yep, stake through the heart. Uh, It had to be made of ash wood in Russia.
0: Oh, so there were specific kinds of wood.
1: Yeah, in Serbia, you needed hawthorn. um, Where oak was preferred in Silesia. Wow,
0: okay, so you had to just carry around all different kinds of wood if you were traveling the countries?
1: Yeah, sure, it depends on which, uh, would, well, I mean, I think just a, a a Serb would be walking around with a Hawthorne steak.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Telling those Russians they're doing it wrong. Probably. Usually the steak would go through the heart, Buffy the Vampire Slayer style, um, but for example, in Germany it was believed that you would pound the steak through the mouth of the vampire. Yuck. Seems yuckier, yeah. Um, But the whole idea of staking, this is interesting and like a very childlike logic thing. It probably, scholars think it had to do with deflating the bloated corpse of the vampire.
0: Well, because they probably didn't understand why corpses did bloat.
1: Not at all. And you would expect if anything, as the life force leaves something, look at your loved one with consumption, they're getting thinner Um, you know, the moisture seems to be sucked out of their, their frame and their body. You can see their tendons and muscles underneath. So the idea of, yeah, a corpse, not only not having rotted away in the couple of weeks since you buried it, but actually having puffed up some, um, must've seemed like something supernatural was going on. It just didn't square with what they understood of the physical world. Mm -hmm. In Germany, again, if you were going to stake a vampire, it would be through the mouth, but the preferred method was actually decapitation.
0: Yeah, that's still a thing.
1: The vampire's head would be placed either between the feet, behind the buttocks. Just like, look at him, he's sitting on his own head. Uh, or away from the body. So you just bury the head separately. That's probably safest.
2: Hmm.
0: What? So to prevent the head from, like, getting stuck back on and it coming back to life? Yeah,
1: like the immortal from uh, Invincible.
2: Hmm.
1: I have to assume. <laughs> um gypsies or romani people would uh, drive steel or iron needles into the corpse's heart of like of their loved one at burial they wouldn't dig them back up to do this this was part of the burial ritual they would drive needles into their hearts like a little um like a little gypsy albert fish Ew. and uh they believed that would prevent the corpse from rising as a vampire um <laughs> and i love this in both the balkans and in romania it was believed that uh vampires could also be killed by shooting or drowning not just with the stake or the decapitation or whatever so you do just normal just normal bullets and so sometimes as part of the burial they would just shoot a coffin <laughs> like just yeah, just in case throw a bullet in there real quick and then if it is a vampire you're not coming back might as well And uh, as you touched on, Carrie, Bram Stoker would incorporate many of those European folklore elements into his smash hit Dracula, which did kind of, um, you know, yeah, brought it all together into one package and sold it to uh, European and later American audiences as like our modern pop culture vampire. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now, interestingly... Those legends, those vampire legends, had reached England. I mean, I think the first use of the word vampire in English was in like the early 1700s or something. Uh, Bram Stoker wrote Dracula in 1897, so in all likelihood, the freshest vampires in his mind would have been this this recent talk of New England vampires and specifically the Mercy Brown case.
0: Well, I did read somewhere that he had been touring America while this was all going on because I think he was part of a theater company and he did have clippings from this case in his possessions uh, when he died.
1: Wow. it's even been, It's been suggested and I think this is a little weird. We'll dig further into Mercy uh, in, the, in our next segment, but it is claimed that some scholars claim that Stoker may have based Lucy Westenra on Mercy Brown.
0: Well, I mean, if he really did have those news clippings in his possession, then why not?
1: In any case, as I said, the vampire panic in New England started a long time before Mercy Brown. And that is why we're going to get started in Connecticut, of all places, in 1784, as we embark on our tour of vampire exorcisms throughout New England after the break. Ooh.
0: Hey, everyone, you're invited to Harpy Harpy Hour. Hour. I'm Tracy. I'm Liz. I'm Steph. We are the Harpies, and Harpy Hour is our new podcast featuring ridiculous stories in history, science, and entertainment. Were you ever suspicious that pigeons were secretly spying on you? How do you know who to eat first if you survive a shipwreck? Do problematic musicals send you into an uncontrollable rage? If so, then Harpy Hour might be your new favorite podcast. That's H-A-R-P-Y for Harpy, and new episodes air every Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on all social media at Harpy Pod, And check us out on HarpyHourPodcast.com.
2: Okay, bye!
1: Welcome back! when last we left you, I think I had given us a pretty good primer on the tuberculosis situation in New England throughout the 1800s and the um, accumulation of vampire folklore that had kind of, that was kind of the background for this um, local myth about what consumption or tuberculosis actually was. Mm-hmm. And here I think we're going to see how widespread this belief seems to have been uh, throughout New England. This isn't like a one-off activity, you know what I mean?
0: No, I've heard it referred to as the New England Vampire Panic.
1: Yes. Um And it's not, panic almost brings to mind things like Salem, you know what I mean? The Vampire Panic luckily was, only had dead victims. For the, no, yeah, only had dead victims, right? This is, this is corpse desecration we're talking about. If, of course, there weren't real vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, something like Salem happened in such a concentrated time and was actual murders. Right. That's, this does seem like a much more dire situation. Um, but this is often seen as kind of more of a, a morbid historical curiosity. Sure. And I'm happy to explore it as that. The first New England vampire exorcism that I have a record of took place over 100 years before the Mercy Brown incident in 1784 in Willington, Connecticut.
0: I always say we always get skipped over for everything else, but we have plenty of weirdness here. We just don't talk about it very much.
1: Yeah, we had witch uh, hangings and um,
0: we always got to the weird stuff first. Yes.
1: Whereas uh, Massachusetts and Rhode Island would close it out
2: Mm -hmm.
1: proudly at the end. Um, in 1784 in Willington, Isaac Johnson exhumed the bodies of his children, Amos and Elizabeth, along with uh, two doctors, so that he could try and cure himself of consumption. His children had both died uh, of the disease. One had been dead and buried for a year. One had been dead and buried for a year and 11 months.
0: Why did he think digging them up would solve his uh tuberculosis
1: well one of these doctors was from europe we have this we have this account only from one eyewitness not from isaac johnson himself but that eyewitness called this a quack doctor from europe who had come and uh come to this guy with who kids had died of consumption the guy was suffering from consumption and the doctor said oh yes we have an old folk remedy in europe that will help you help you with this
0: dig up the corpses of your kids that won't be traumatic
1: Johnson was told to exhume the corpses of his sons and look for roots or shoots growing through the bodies. If there was such uh, vegetation, he was supposed to remove all plant matter and burn it along with all of the boy's internal organs. Yeah. Um, it should be noted that the eyewitness who did give us this account um, shared it like with the local paper or whatever so that other community members, quote, wouldn't be fooled. <laughs> By this charlatan. hmm So um, even back then, people were cocking an eyebrow, even in this kind of su- superstitious uh, New England time.
0: It's also just another example of someone taking advantage of someone else's desperation, especially when it comes to health. Yes. Though I don't know what the doctor was getting out of it. Presumably he was getting paid.
1: Yes, I do. I do think the doctor probably charged for his services. I mean, he dug through the cemetery when looking for those roots and shoots
0: sure
1: um but that part of the legend is interesting you don't see that in the mercy brown one the idea that there's like a vine growing through a demonic vine growing into your loved ones and that's where the i don't know vampirism comes from
0: yeah hmm i don't even understand where it okay (laughs) i don't even understand how it would relate
1: our next account comes from almost a decade later. In- wait,
0: wait, wait. Did he get cured of the tuberculosis? No
1: idea. We don't have an account of the end of that story. And some of these stories are that way. There's some like, you know, there was a report printed in a paper of a guy exhuming his family. And the paper didn't have the result. Hope that went well. Right. And the paper doesn't know whether the guy lived, right?
0: Well, I mean, I'm sure the paper did then, but that he didn't report about it. Right. So we don't know.
1: Less than a decade later, we have our next case. And by the way, um, we have reason to believe these exorcisms were happening more than the ones we have written down. Um, For example, in 1990, in Connecticut, um, I want to say in Brunswick, Connecticut, but that's wrong. So in, in one of the northern towns in Connecticut in 1990, some kids were playing in a gravel pit. And like, as kick- you do, they were sliding down a privately owned gravel pit, as you do if you're living in like the north part of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And um, the boys are skidding down some rocks. Ooh, here we go! And they kicked a few skulls loose, and they were like, "Ooh!" Ah! Just
0: typical Connecticut days in the gravel pit.
1: And then, um, so an archaeology team was eventually called in, and this archaeology team determined that this had been a vampire exorcism, because when they tracked down the rest of the bodies, the skulls and femurs had been placed in skull and crossbones positions, and there was evidence that the bodies had been dug up after they'd been buried. So the archaeologists' assumption was this had been a vampire exorcism and it, it could have happened any, any time between like 1750 and 1850 or something. They just
0: didn't assume it was pirates or something.
1: No, they didn't. They didn't. Or yeah, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn playing pirate games. Um, they lived in Mississippi. They assumed that it was uh, the family had dug up the corpses of the uh, already killed by presumably consumption. Children, uh, but finding them skeletons and no internal organs to burn, um, I think just to be safe, they did the little skull and crossbones, thinking that would ward off the evil. Sure. I don't know. People get desperate.
0: <laughs> yeah, obviously.
1: And there's people, even, it wasn't just, okay, this only happened in New England because, again, it was a lot of farming communities. It was a lot of less educated um, folks, right? Not um, city people who, who had other people around to tell them that their thoughts were dumb, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but there were respectable rich types, highly educated people who also, uh, I don't want to say fell victim, but who also went in for this superstitious solution. And in 1793 in Dummerston, Vermont, Lieutenant Leonard Spaulding, who was a hero of the French and Indian war, and I believe the revolution too, and was one of the first elected representatives in the Vermont legislature. Like he was a big deal. Mm -hmm. He and three of his children all died of consumption between 1790, between 1782 and 88. A few years of peace passed, and then two more of Spaulding's kids died of consumption in 1790 and 1792, at which point the remaining family started to get desperate, and superstitious mm-hmm. um, once- how much
0: was there remaining that's a lot of people so far
1: yeah uh, it, how, oh how much of the of the family is, is left yeah. um, at the time we know that there was a daughter of Lieutenant Spaulding who was ill with consumption so there was at least one more child mm-hmm. remember families at this time would have 13 14 kids
0: true but most of them wouldn't make it past uh, childhood or very young you know right. babies
1: Um, Now, again, references made in this case to finding a vine growing from coffin to coffin of the loved ones. And they said they found a vine that grew straight from one of the coffins all the way to the last one.
0: And these vines made them vampires?
1: Yeah, it's coming from the earth, so obviously from Satan. Okay. And so they removed the vine. And um, 32-year-old Leonard Jr. was the last to have been buried and the last one who the vine had reached. So his body was dug up. His vital organs were all removed and burned. And Leonard Jr.'s sister, Leonard Sr.'s daughter, allegedly got better from her disease.
0: What would they do with these ashes? Would they bury them
1: again? or? Uh, it depends. In In these er- cases here, these early cases, I think they're just discarding them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but there were cases where it was believed that the family member could drink a tonic made of the burned organs of their loved one. Ew. And that that would uh, cure you of your consumption.
0: That's hideous.
1: It's horrible. And it's what happened in the Mercy Brown case. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. God. Also in 1793, in the same year, in nearby Manchester, Vermont, a Captain Isaac Burton was having issues of his own. His wife, Rachel Harris, had died in 1790 Less than a year after they had gotten married. Guess what killed her?
0: Tuberculosis.
1: That's correct. Uh, After her wasting death, he married his second wife, Hulda Powell, just a year later. So the spirit of Rachel may not have been happy uh, about that. In any case, Hulda's health quickly declined. Hulda? Yeah, Hulda. H-U-L-D-A. She sounds like a handsome woman. (laughs) Uh, Her health quickly declined. And family and friends all kind of came over to Isaac and decided for him, like, "Hey, this is that jealous ex-wife of yours. This is that broad it wasn't Rachel." An
0: ex, she died.
1: This is that broad Rachel. Wow. And so it was that three years after Rachel's barrier, three years after Rachel's burial, one thousand townspeople came out to watch her body be exhumed. Yeah. And the heart and liver. A few of these earlier ones say, like, the internal organs or the vital organs, and it sounds like they mean, like, all of them. But uh, heart and liver liver are specifically mentioned a lot. So, uh, in this case, her heart and liver were uh, put in the blacksmith's forge and reduced to ash. Hulda, it says, may or may not have drunk the ashes with her medicine. It's unclear whether that was part of the thing. How Um, twisted
0: is that to to drink your husband's dead wife's... Ashes.
1: Yeah, it's dark. Ugh. It's dark. And it's interesting that it's a blacksmith's forge, right? Yeah. Iron had often played a role in folk beliefs about exercising vampires. Remember I talked about the iron needles that the Romani people would use. I also uh,
0: wonder if that's one of the only places where it would get hot enough to do, to burn these, these things fully.
1: That's true. To incinerate human meat down to ash, um, yeah, it would take quite a while in a traditional oven or something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Not that we
1: know. No, we certainly haven't tried to do that. (laughs) Um, A Stephen Staples in Cumberland, Rhode Island, asked the town council for permission to dig up his daughter Abigail in 1796, quote, in order to try and experiment on, end quote, his other daughter. Um, And he was given permission provided he bury Abigail again decently afterward. We don't know anything else about that case, so I can't tell you whether it worked or... She's
0: not a vampire or anything. I just wanted to experiment a little bit. Yeah,
1: I just wanted to experiment on my daughter. Weird. Um, Here's a chilling tale. More chilling
0: than a guy wanting to dig up his daughter and not saying Mm. why?
1: Well, it's a bigger family. In 1799, in Exeter, Rhode Island, so the same town we'll be returning to for the Mercy Brown case later, about a century later... Stutley and Honor Tillengast had a very large family, 14 children, and so, you know, arguably their luck was pretty good that only four of them suddenly died of consumption. Sarah, the daughter, was the first to go, and legend tells us the other children had dreams of their dead sister before they came down with consumption and died themselves.
2: I
0: mean, that's not hard to believe.
1: No, it's not. You would dream of a family member that you just recently (laughs) lost. That makes sense. However, when Honor started having visions of Sarah, his wife, um, Stutley knew something had to be done. As they dug up the children, the more recent deaths, the more recent children to die were all decomposed. But allegedly Sarah had her eyes open. Her hair had grown and was falling across her breast. Uh, Her nails seemed longer too. And when they opened it up, her heart was full of fresh blood. Mm. So they removed it from her chest and burned it on quote, the designated rock. I guess they just had a place where they burned stuff in this town.
0: Well, I did hear uh, that you can still find the rock that mercy Brown's organs were burned on in that cemetery. Mm. But, um, Is that like a thing with tuberculosis where you have like blood in your heart or something?
1: Um, No, it's not a thing with tuberculosis. It's a thing with hearts.
0: No, I know. But I mean, for it to be like so strange and unexpected, I was just wondering, maybe something with tuberculosis affected it. I don't know.
1: No, these are just people who don't know that much about the human body, right? And so they expect like, whoa, he's dead his skin is pale obviously the blood has left okay um anyway for the Tillinghasts, uh, the nightmare was just about over after the ritual uh, well one more kid did die of tuberculosis but who's counting it was only five of the 14 nice yeah um in 1807 arguably the very birthplace of our nation plymouth massachusetts has vague accounts of another family with 14 children where 13 of them died Along with the father. I think they were counting. The mother was the only one left, and Plymouth Villagers got her permission to try an exorcism. They dug up the youngest daughter, and I have a direct quote here from an eyewitness account. The cheek was full to dimpling, and a rich profusion of hair shaded the cold forehead, while some of its richest curls floated upon her unconscious breast. Oh, this was the one with the where it mentioned the hair on the the hair down to the breast. The large blue eye had scarcely lost its brilliancy, and the livid fullness of her lips almost seemed to say, loose me and let me go.
0: I think this guy wants to bang this corpse. Of a
1: small girl. Ugh. Um, the, did you notice it said the large blue eye? As I if just did. one of them was open. I did notice, yes. Um, very telling. And it also puts, <laughs> sure. puts me in mind of the telltale heart as well. Mm-hmm. That last child died two weeks after the exorcism. The mother left all alone, lingered for about a year before she, too, succumbed to consumption.
0: That's horrible. It's a horrible story. It
1: was a horrible disease. Yeah.
0: Vaccinations and, uh, and medical things are good <laughs>
1: Yeah, it turns out, it's almost like the moral of this story is that people should listen to their doctors.
0: But not quack doctors from Europe.
1: No, actual <laughs> medical doctors. I, and I'll I'll get to the advice of doctors eventually. Remember that at this point in history, they still don't know what causes this. Can you imagine how terrifying, by the way? Like, germ theory is not a thing yet.
0: Um, I mean, I think we, we had kind of a, a, a semi- uh, version of this in like march 2020 i was like what causes this how is this happening why is this happening
1: but we knew immediately it was a virus and you and i know what a virus is yes
0: that is true we we never jumped to vampire
1: we never thought it was a magical spell for one second Mm -hmm. unlike the people of barnstead new hampshire in 1810 21 year old Janie dunnett had died of consumption when her father took ill, Janie was, of course, dug up. Um, this time there's again mention, and this is from New Hampshire, there was mention of them looking for vines among the bones.
0: What's it with these vines?
1: And in this case, they couldn't find any vines, and I think they just buried her again. Hmm. They were like, oh, not a vampire.
0: No vine. That's the end of that.
1: Uh, also, Janie had been buried for about two years and was little more than bones when they dug her up, so um, there weren't, wouldn't have been any organs to burn anyway.
0: Unless she was walking around like a skeleton. Skeletons are scary.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, A few hundred miles away in Woodstock, Vermont, seven years later, Frederick Ransom, a 20-year-old student at Dartmouth University, died of consumption. His father apparently was terrified Frederick would feed on him from the grave. And uh, quickly had him exhumed and his heart burned in a blacksmith forge.
0: Wow. So like, just, you know, cutting him off at the pass. Yes.
1: You're not getting the rest of my family. And like, I don't think Frederick Ransom, or I don't think the dad was even sick.
0: Yeah. Right. So he was just sort of getting there before it happens.
1: Um, Once again, the cure was ineffectual. Mrs. Ransom died in 1821 followed by a daughter and two more sons over the next 10 years. Mm. A decade later in Foster, Rhode Island, the young family, who had many children, it seems, uh, had their oldest daughter, Nancy, die at 19 of TB. Nancy was exhumed and her body was burned. This time, uh, this is an interesting wrinkle, while the rest of the family stood around and inhaled her fumes.
0: Ew. I guess I'd rather do that than drink it. Would you? Yeah, I think Do you know so. what a
1: burning corpse smells like?
0: Do you know what a burning corpse tastes like?
1: No, but I know that it would be over. I would drink that thing fast. I can chug. I
0: don't know. I'd take one whiff and be out, I think.
1: The family had to stand around like the whole time while she burned to ash on a table in the middle of the room.
0: You know how long that would take? I don't want it in my mouth, Sean. The, f- your, the fumes are going to be in your lungs. I don't want to taste it.
1: How do you think that, that one worked, Carrie? Badly. Yep. Five more children in the family would die of tuberculosis, with only three making it to adulthood. Oh, boy. Now you start to see him space out a little bit more as you get deeper into the 1800s. Again, these sanitariums in like Colorado were starting to open up. People were starting to understand a little bit more about what could actually help them with this illness, even if they didn't know what was causing it yet. Um, But in 1830 in Woodstock, Vermont, after one brother died of consumption and the other fell ill soon after, um, most of Woodstock turned up to see the dead brother exhumed and burned right there on the town square in the grass. Uh, Some of the ashes were put in a pot to be buried in the town green and it was like sealed with a block of granite so the, I don't know, ashes couldn't climb out.
0: It's better than them having, like, a town chili or something.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, it's funny that you mention that, because the rest of the um, ashes were saved as, quote, medicine for the living brother. It was mixed with bull's blood, and he drank that down. We don't have uh, any information on the result. I don't know if that brother made it. God. In 1854, in Jewett City, we're back in Connecticut now. The Ray family lost their father in 1849, just four years after losing a son in 1845, and a daughter followed both of them in 1851. A second son had come down with consumption when the family started suspecting there might be a vampire (laughs) out in the family plot.
0: So vampires would only come after their family members. They would never come after someone else.
1: It seems. Well, that's because, like, tuberculosis would so clearly spread through a family, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And because of the way that it, um, like I said, only 10% of cases are symptomatic. Right. But the symptomatic ones are fatal half of the time. And so you don't see, like, a natural, it's harder to track the cause and effect of, oh, he got sick, he got sick, he got sick, then I saw him and I got sick. Mm -hmm. Because some of the people in the chain didn't get sick. In fact, like, nine-tenths of them didn't. And then I don't know if some families were just particularly susceptible. I know some of them, some families believed that they were um, genetically like susceptible. Weird. Yeah. Anyway, maybe they and, were
0: just all on top of each other and getting each other sick. They and they were
1: <laughs> passing it back and forth, right? And 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 the it the infection just lives in the house for years.
0: Yeah, and digging up tuberculosis corpses and breathing them in or drinking them probably isn't great
1: yeah i don't think any tb is alive in the ashes of a heart but uh yeah it probably didn't help no um anyhow the two men and the daughter were dug up and both uh, the elder and younger ray boys were dust and bones at this point Um, but the daughter quote had fresh red blood in her heart now, she was burned, coffin and all. They didn't go to the whole work of taking the organs out. Uh, they just burned the whole thing. Uh, might as well. The ill son, Henry Ray, um, died that year, probably of tuberculosis. Um, three of his children and his wife all suffered the same fate. Yeesh. Now, sometime in the 1870s in West Stafford, back in Connecticut again, Five sisters died of tuberculosis, uh, and the villagers are recorded to have exhumed them and uh, burned their vitals in order to save their younger sister. How'd that go? That sister, I don't believe, died of tuberculosis.
0: Well, that's good.
1: That's great, right? And in 1874, in South Kingstown, Exeter, Rhode Island, bordering the Exeter, Rhode Island that we have seen before and will return to again, Rush Ellen Rose the daughter of William Rose had died of tuberculosis at age 15 rush. Yeah.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, William had rush exhumed and her heart cut out and burned just to be safe. No one in the family was ill.
0: Why didn't they just cut her heart out to begin with? Then
1: I don't know. That's the amazing thing because it does say he had her exhumed, but it also explicitly <laughs> like he was thinking says about it, was it just for a to few be safe.
0: days, and he was like, "No, nah. well, she's
1: probably a vampire." I should probably de- well, just in case. It's like you, it's like you left the oven on,
0: mm-hmm. and he
1: like t- as long as he could, he ignored it, and then he was like, "I have to deal with this."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Interestingly, William Rose's wife was Mary Tillengast and she was the great-granddaughter of Stutley and Honor Tillengast, who had done the vampire exorcism in Exeter in 1799, 75 years earlier.
0: What the hell?
1: Remember that family came out of it yeah, with like eight, yeah. eight kids left?
0: Yeah. Um,
1: she is the granddaughter of one of those kids.
0: That's crazy. And so
1: this is family lore that she has where she's like, oh, if somebody dies of consumption, you got to burn that heart. Yeah. Wow.
0: Why is it so prevalent in the area of Exeter, Rhode Island?
1: Well, in this case, it's because of this family. The gas had 14 kids. Yeah. You know, or half of that or something after the, the affair. But yeah. Wow. And that brings us back to the last recorded case of a vampire exorcism in New England, and certainly the best known, Mercy Brown. Now, George and Mary Eliza Brown... We'll call her Mary Eliza to separate her from her daughter, Mary Olive, um, had Olive. Th- had three kids. Mary Olive, Mercy, and Edwin. Uh, Mary Eliza, the mother, died in 1884 of consumption. So
0: she was the first to get it?
1: She was. Mary Olive, the older daughter, died second in 1886. And finally, both Mercy and Edwin got sick in 1891. Hmm. Now, Edwin was very ill and he was so bad in fact that he was sent off to a sanitarium in Colorado Springs actually to recover. Mm-hmm. And this must have been an expensive endeavor for a family that was like essentially a, a poor farming family in Rhode Island
0: because the girl didn't get to go to.
1: The girl did not get to go to. typical. She died in 1891 and Edwin got worse in Colorado Springs. And, uh, uh, came back home basically on death's door. Now the village doctor and doctors from neighboring towns were telling George and were telling George Brown that uh, it was consumption attacking his family. They were saying it's, it's believed to be caused by some kind of a, a, a microorganism, um, but neighbors george were
0: just like what the hell is that
1: it's it's past we believe through the air and you know you don't if you spend too much time with the sick person that's how you get it um but neighbors were starting to tell george about the stories of vampire loved ones that had been circulating around new england for a century
2: and
0: especially around exeter
1: yeah uh, local papers say george was initially very skeptical but desperate to save his son on Wednesday, March 17th, 1892, he acquiesced, and locals got, again, their shovels and their picks and went to work at Chestnut Hill Cemetery. Now, as I said, Mary Eliza and Mary Olive were both skeletons, having been buried for six and eight years, respectively.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And as you pointed out before, Carrie, no embalming uh, at this time either.
0: I mean, there probably was embalming, but, but they not- weren't involved.
1: Yes, no involvement in a rural rural community.
0: Yeah. I don't know the the history of that specifically, but they they definitely used to do something for preservation.
1: Meanwhile, Mercy, buried nine weeks before, was strangely well-preserved to the eyes of the villagers. And as I said, hair had seemed to grow, nails, teeth, and blood was found in her heart and her liver.
0: Yeah, but... It was cold, wasn't it?
1: Yes, it was the de- she was buried in the dead of winter. In fact, I think so cold that she had to be kept in an above-ground vault for a few months.
0: And I'm sure that just made it better for her to stay preserved.
1: Yeah. I mean, New England, like Rhode Island cold in the dead of winter.
0: So it's not that crazy that she hadn't decomposed, especially in only nine weeks. I mean, we have this idea that we become a puddle in like a couple days but that's just not true especially in certain
1: conditions right and the doctor the village doctor who was on site actually tried to explain that yeah he was going All good it's <laughs> going no this is pretty normal it's it's really cold out you know <laughs>
0: meanwhile her father's like
1: ah! Ah! he's like you, you guys know how we put meat in cold places to, to keep it fresh sometimes mm-hmm. um but Nonetheless, the townspeople set instantly to work, removing Mercy's heart and liver before reburying her.
0: Well, this is kind of their thing.
1: Yeah, it's like a, well, it's a fun thing for the community to all get together, you know? Mm -hmm. Really rally behind something. Her heart and liver were burned to ash, and again, mixed with water, and given to Edwin, her brother, to drink. In hopes that it would cure his consumption, get him back on his feet.
0: How'd he enjoy that? Oh,
1: I'm sure he didn't enjoy it. Again, I can't think of anything more revolting besides maybe a witch cake. Yeah. And uh, it didn't do poor Edwin any good as he died two months later. Hmm. Now, like I said, this all came at a strange time in America's and the world's relationship to tuberculosis. Um, And
0: death. I mean, this is the Victorian era and... The Victorians were very morbid.
1: Yeah, uh, that was actually discussed in some of the articles I read like to our modern sensibilities it sounds the idea of exhuming a loved one sounds crazy and horrifying.
0: Yeah, but they this is the same time that they used to have funerals in the house, they used to keep locks of hair and things like that. It's take- like necklaces or, you know, and they would take pictures with dead bodies. Yes,
1: they would take a family photograph with the open corpse, even of a child.
0: It's actually very modern to not have a corpse in your house.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're keeping it old school here. <laughs> shh, shh, shh. Um, germ theory was just beginning to take hold in the U.S., in... That, that
0: also contributed to us not having funerals and, and such in our homes, by the way.
1: Yes, that makes sense.
0: Rotting bodies,
1: not, not great for the health. Yes, you shouldn't have them in your in your home. Yeah. Um, unless you put in some nice eye makeup on them, like that cult we talked about a few months ago. Uh,
2: but well, uh,
0: she was mummified, so that was
1: different. I'm sure they did it well, too. They're probably great mummies.
0: No, no. She was missing her eyes.
1: Yeah. Um, So germ theory was just beginning to take hold, and we were starting to understand where things like tuberculosis came from and how you cured them. In other words, superstitions like this, there are superstitions people hold true to today, you know, en masse. Um, But superstitions like this, stuff that's really wild and magical, uh, was really starting to fall out of fashion as science was gaining ground. And um, so the story was circulated in papers across the U.S. and the world um, really as a curiosity. More than anything else. As a look at what these weird folks are doing, these weird hillbillies up in New England.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, As I said, scholars have also suggested that it uh, put the idea of vampires into Bram Stoker's head, brought us uh, Dracula ultimately, and and therefore reintroduced vampires to us in pop culture form. So in that way, in a pop cultural way, this might be, you know, a really important event. Um, What it certainly is, is a very strange story and and a creepy one that uh I don't know captures imaginations to this day. I think this this sort of um there's a lot about this that's just macabre and mysterious and um and there's also as always a little flash of like yeah, but what if vampires?
0: Yeah. It's certainly very macabre and yeah, I mean we visited that grave a few years ago when we went to Rhode Island for like a weekend away. Because that's what we do on our weekends away. And there were a lot of like little coins and trinkets left at Mercy's grave. So this is definitely a, a story and a legend um, that has really stayed in public consciousness, especially in this area.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And in the era of COVID 19, I think it is a, uh, a welcome reminder to listen to your doctor. Um, take uh, whatever modern medicine is giving you as far as a fighting chance against the uh, disease du jour. And um, you know, don't drink your family's ashes,
0: yeah, probably not. Probably not that.
2: Hey, podcast listeners. I'm Paul Brandis, introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events
0: This past Sunday, a 28-year-old woman underwent a nine-hour exorcism after attacking a priest during confession at the Church of St. Mary of Mount Berico in Vicenza, northern Italy.
1: Oh, I wouldn't try that at a Unitarian church.
0: <laughs> Corriere del Veneto reported that the woman began screaming, unleashing blasphemies and curses in different voices and languages, including Latin, which she apparently hadn't previously known. She lost control, attacking anyone who approached, including the friar confessor and her mother, who she slapped during the whole fracas.
1: Wait, I was just going to say Latin's not that different from Italian.
0: Well, As she threw herself against the furniture and ran around the room, she was eventually restrained by the friars, who called in the father exorcist of the sanctuary.
1: They have one just on call? He's ready.
0: Yeah, there's a few, actually. He administered the rite of exorcism for nine long hours with the assistance of four other friars and another father from outside the region who video conferenced in. So imagine trying to do a, an exorcism over Zoom.
2: Oh, thanks, COVID.
0: Uh, padre, Padre, you're on mute. You're on mute. <laughs> One of the friars who participated in the exorcism, Father Carlo Rosato, confirmed the case to Corriere del Veneto, which is, I guess, a local paper. Telling them that, quote, the key to salvation was the mother, the only one who understood that she was under the influence of the evil one. It was a real possession, and it was only in the evening that the situation was resolved, when the f- girl physically collapsed and was taken home. How old is the girl? 28. Before proceeding with an exorcism, the psychological and psychiatric situation is carefully evaluated to see if the phenomena experienced can find under other explanations. Quote, the diocese therefore invites prudence and judgment in prayer, says a spokesman for the Curia, and the Curia is an official body that governs a particular church in the Catholic Church. So it's like this church's governing body. Mm-hmm. In the area of Vincenza in, in the area of Vincenza, there are four exorcists entrusted by the bishop with conducting the rite of exorcism so wow like we like we said there's there's more than one where are the ones here it's a little different here i think we're a little further away from all of the catholic doctrine of italy
1: are we further away from the demons no i would
0: argue they're probably closer give me an exorcist (laughs) also in this area apparently the curia has seen hundreds of similar cases over the years
1: so wow.
0: We'll see how this uh, young lady fares after all is said and done, I guess.
1: Do you think they're just playing those um high pitched frequencies in there that like people above 30 can't hear and it just <laughs> makes the young people go crazy and they go great, another exorcism.
0: Maybe. I mean, hundreds is a lot for one area.
1: Dog whistle. Ow. ow. <laughs>
0: That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ain't it scary and check out our website at ain't it scary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five star review on Apple podcasts. We'll be forever grateful.
1: That's right, we certainly will, and we are grateful for our current top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atchison. Thanks, guys. And um, for those of you who are interested in our Patreon offerings, we have, um, hey, if you liked that Beatles episode last week, we have two, I think, really good aint <clears throat> getting the branding right on this, interviews Mm-hmm. Well, one with uh, Carrie's father, Paul Ferrante, favorite uh, uh, guest here on the show.
0: That one's coming later this week.
1: And one out now, I believe, with mm-hmm. Charles Rosanet. Um Charles was the founder of the very first paranormal convention here in Connecticut, Paracon, which... Um, Hopefully you saw us at earlier this year.
0: Yeah, and you might have heard him on our Paracon special episode. And he's also a Beatles expert and he has a lot of fun little tidbits that he shares about the whole Paul is dead drama.
1: Yeah, and uh, Carrie's dad mostly um, turned his nose up and poo-pooed it, but it was very fun.
0: (laughs) Very fun indeed. See you next Thursday.
1: Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube
2: channel, Music is a Verb.
0: This has been a production of Longboy Media.